Welcome to the MTB Tribe Podcast, your, your trail map for the world of mountain biking. And now, I'll introducing your host, Gareth Beckett. Welcome to the MTB Tribe Podcast, episode number two. Thank you so much for listening to the show that takes you inside the sport of mountain biking, picking the brains of industry leaders, finding out what makes them tick. We will bring you information on everything from gear to diet to trails and everything in between and also why I ride. Yes, I want to talk to you, the everyday rider, and break down the reasons why you ride, what you ride and where you ride. So please get in touch, get involved. You can visit us at mtb-tribe.com. You can download the shows via iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher or whatever platform you would prefer. So please get in contact, get your voice heard and let's introduce today's guest. In episode two I am stoked to welcome MBLA skills and qualification coach Ian Bailey. I hooked up with Ian at the Tullymore National Outdoor Centre where he runs his own business called Rock and Ride Outdoors. Ian has been mountain biking for around about 30 years. In this second episode I ask Ian a lot of different questions, but really what got him started in mountain biking, what his time racing was like and what he had to sacrifice around them times, how he decided to build a career around mountain biking, how difficult it was to gain his many bike-related qualifications, how you can train and work in Europe being a mountain bike guide, and also why he likes 29ers. You'll also hear some incredible stories from his early days, how the scene looked around that time, and how a trip with a mate to France went a little wrong. So join me for a chat with Ian, find out what skills we should all master, how to live the lifestyle you love, and get yourself stoked in the process. All right, Ian, how are you doing? Very well, thanks. Yeah, good. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for being here today. Pleasure. How's life treating you at the minute? Not too bad, yeah. Yeah, recovering from a few injuries, but yeah, generally generally very good. Oh, very good, very good. So, Ian's, I've joined Ian today, actually, about his place of work here, which is, do you want to tell the audience just a wee bit about this facility? Yeah, so at the moment we're at Tollymore National Outdoor Centre, which is in County Down, Northern Ireland. Um, I do bits and pieces of work here, um, but I spend most of my time in Tollymore Forest, which is right next to us, um, where I run a coaching and mountain bike leadership company called Rock and Ride Outdoors. Happy days. Very good. So we'll talk about that in a wee minute, but I want to chat to you just really about your background. Yep. Let the audience, people listening, know how you get into mountain biking because it's an area I'm quite interested in, just how people get actually involved yeah, in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so tell me how you get into mountain biking. What initially sparked your interest? Oh, so long ago. <laughs> it's hard to remember. Like um, You're talking back end of the 80s, and I guess mountain bikes were first kind of appearing over in England. And I'd always ridden bikes since I was two, three years old, I suppose, like most kids do. And these bikes started appearing in catalogs and bits and pieces. And I just loved it. I just loved the look of them. Um, I lived in Devon where we had some good countryside and bits and pieces. And initially, my dad helped me just build, I guess, what would have been like a cyclocross bike. Right. Okay. Back in the day. Um, and when that fell apart, we, yeah, I managed to raise enough money to get my first little six gear ML mountain bike. Remember it well? And I, yeah. Just, I was dragging that across the bogs on Exmoor for a few years and that was it from then. Just, 
So were you seeing much coverage in the media at that time? Was there magazines floating about, TV coverage, anything like that? Or? Not right back then. I mean, I had the first copies of Mountain Bike UK mm-hmm. and Mountain Bike Rider, which I don't think exists anymore. But, you know, I had <laughs> stacks of those all through the first few years of them existing. So I guess I started biking before the media took off. And we're talking pre-internet here as well. So right. proper old school. Um no, I mean, it, it, was, it was really sort of innocent, if you like, back then. Mm. You know, I'd seen these bikes, got hold of one, and then just went and rode. That's, yeah. that's all we did. And I guess these days, there's no way I consider doing the kind of riding that I did then, because it was more pushing and carrying than riding. I suppose it's come full circle with people bike packing so much yeah. these days. But yeah. yeah, like, there was no influences at all. Right, well. It was just, yeah, buy a bike and go and did you have friends biked with you or was there a few years done it or? back then I mean, it's me and my dad no um and then a good mate of mine matt got into it as well and then the whole cross-country race scene kind of kicked off when i was about 11 12 13 years old maybe and then it seemed to explode i guess the start of the 90s that's when it really first kicked off mm-hmm. and so then everybody or all, all my friends yeah, yeah started riding mountain bikes yeah well it's funny because speaking to a couple of friends that used to do it way back then you know they're the same they they kind of just fell into it yeah there was no real maybe the odd magazine knocking about but yeah that was really it and it was just i think because it looked so different and the bikes were so different bmx was probably about at that stage but yeah it was sort of the back end of bmx you know yeah. i had a bmx before that but it was definitely when that was fading, that was dying yeah. to some degree or sort of shrinking back to the to the core, I suppose. And yeah, mm. mountain bikes just appeared at the right time to save the bike industry, I think. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I was just inspired from the start. Just loved it. Brilliant. So when you got up a wee bit, did you race amateur, professional, what? I uh, never professional. No. Right. I mean, yeah, I raced cross country. That's all there was initially, you know, it mm-hmm. was you can get on google you see how the events used to be it used to be a cross-country race and then something like a hill climb and the hill climb would just either be an uphill time trial or even worse it would just be this really steep hill and seeing who could ride the furthest up it um and everyone's just on the same pretty horrendous bikes you know back then (laughs) and yeah I, i started racing and i was quite small as a kid so i was useless and i just got battered um and then when i was about 13 14 i started training a bit and i grew a bit and started doing all right in cross-country racing but no it's never that great so a regional champion but never never right, that, okay. that good really and was the scene pretty big at that stage i'm sure it was I'm yeah sure. it was i mean yeah i suppose by then you're sort of talking mid to late 90s and all the media was there then so we all read the magazines you know i suppose as a kid that's when you start getting obsessed with the kit and everything all the stuff you think you'll never be able to afford mm-hmm. um and yeah i spent my life as a, as a kid sort of doing two or three different jobs just to pay for the bits that i was breaking wow. um and to upgrade my bike and and keep riding yeah wow that's crazy yeah so yeah that, that was Dedicated. that and then then i suppose the downhill came in as well so i started racing downhill um and then it sort of started getting a bit more specialized and so started buying more and more bikes just to be able to race downhill and race cross country. Yeah. And then it started segregating um kind of yeah. to the to the situation it is at the moment. And what keep you in, what what kept you in it at that time? What kept you going? Because I know I know there's a lot of guys around that age start sports and once they realise what girls are and once they get a driving <laughs> licence, they kinda of drop no, out a lot of stuff. But it's true. You, you kept like, going like I got some amazing advice. Um I can't remember the fella's name, but 
he said to me when I was about 13, 14, he said, listen, look, there will be women and there'll be cars and they'll be drinking and there'll be all the <laughs> other kind of uh, distractions of life. But he said, just carry on doing what you enjoy. And that really stayed with me. I was doing a lot of climbing back then as well. So I carried on climbing and I carried on biking all the way through. Um, and most of my mates who did exactly what you said and they got to maybe 18, 19 and stopped they are all back biking again now and they really regret the decade or so that they missed out on. So yeah, it it worked brilliant for me. And you know, I never stepped away even when I had my own car and whatever, I was still riding my bike loads. Mm -hmm. It just, in a way it opened up places I could go to on my bike. Yeah. Um, And and how did you feel at that time? Did you feel you were missing out, you know, your mates, were you speaking to your mates and thinking you were missing out and stuff or no, were you really happy and you just sticking with the bikes? And- I just love biking, you know. Um, it's not like I wasn't getting out drinking. I right. suppose when I had, when I was deep into the race season or whatever, I did take it quite seriously and I wouldn't be boozing then. But no, I didn't. You know, I went to university and I rode for the mountain bike team there and whatever. And that definitely didn't slow down my social life. It was yeah. just, I would, I remember days going out training and thinking, oh, I don't feel very good today. And then you sort of think, well, I had eight pints last night and I only slept for two hours and my diet's pretty crap because I'm a student. Yeah. And it's like, it's no wonder I wasn't riding very well. Um, wow. But no, it never, ever stopped me biking. Right. Well, that's brilliant. That's right. brilliant. So on a wee bit more to to now, um, and you're obviously doing very, very well in your own, um, your own business. Um, but what's your schedule like now? So you still do quite a lot of training, do you? I only race enduro these days. Um, I think it's a really good format for people like myself who, I guess, when I had kids, I had my first kids seven years ago, and I didn't have three hours, four hours a day to train anymore. So Mm. I wasn't going to be competitive racing cross country. Um, And enduro came along, and it kind of allows me to be competitive but not have to put much effort in, I suppose. Right, okay. Um, I still train all the time, but I'm actually running these days, so I, I run mountains a lot. Wow. Um, and, yeah, it's, that's just a different challenge for me. Um, but the Enduro is great. It keeps me in touch with the race scene. It's really good fun. Yeah. You know, I like and to just, say. And just ex- describe to us, Enduro, how that's different from cross-country. Um, <laughs> you get ages to do the uphills, basically. So you don't so. get timed in the uphills, is that? The- Generally, no. I mean, it, it works like a car rally, really, that... You know, you've got transitions which get you between the stages and you have a time. So maybe you'll have three or four hour time limit to do the whole course, but the course will only be maybe 20 kilometers long. And so you sprint like mad on the time downhill sections, which might include a little bit of pedaling, a bit of uphill. Mm-hmm. But then the long stretches between the transition or between the stages, you can take your time, hang out, chat to your mates. So it's mm-hmm. a very sociable thing. You ride around with your mates at the end of each stage, you moan about how badly it went for you. Um, and then you ride on to the next one and forget it and get on with the next stage. So, yeah. yeah. So I know today you're doing a couple of training sessions. Yep. Will that be geared for mountain biking or why are you training at the minute? Um, I'm just back from the World Mountain Running Championships in Italy last weekend um, where I was competing for Ireland. And I've got another big race coming up in October. So it's just training for that. Um, so mainly running at this yeah absolutely and that's the other joy of the enduro it doesn't need any specific training as long as i keep riding bikes all the time then yeah like i guess if i wanted to compete to the level that i compete with the running 
I'd have to train full time. Um, right. But I don't, you know, I'm racing around Northern Ireland. Um, yeah. And just having fun, really. Yeah, happy so, days. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's good. Um, so at the minute then, you I know you've travelled quite a lot, mainly with mountain biking or? Um, I've always made sure I've been near a bike. So yeah. if I didn't take my own, then yeah, I'd spend my time trying to track one down so that I could actually right. get out riding. Yeah. I've never, never been far from a bike. Um, so I've got to ride in some pretty amazing places. Yeah. Yeah. It's been good. Well, t- tell me a couple of, tell me a couple of funny stories or something from some of your travels. Oh, I don't know about funny stories. I'll tell you the sort of highlights. <laughs> um, <laughs> I remember we rode the Tour of Mont Blanc a couple of years ago, which is a brilliant ride. It's about 120 odd miles, loads and loads of mountains, basically all the way around Mont Blanc. Um, and myself and my mate Brian, we carried all our kit on our back. Um, and the plan was because Brian had never slept out under the stars before. It's like, ah, shall we take our sleeping bags and we'll just go for it. And so we rode the first day, found a nice spot to camp, but it was at not far off 3,000 meters elevation, about two and a half thousand meters. And so we settled down for the night and near froze to death that night. It was horrendous. <laughs> Got up the next morning never said anything kind of looked at each other and there was this understanding that we weren't ever going to sleep out again and so we were planning to take three or four days to do the tour and we had to just put our head down and gun it on the second day and we had all sorts of mishaps like brian's pedal fell apart we had to backtrack go find some village with a 19 mil spanner to get it fixed and this kind of stuff but yeah eventually you know we did get around in two days we were sort of sprinting against the dark on on the second night that was yeah it's tough good experience great well, ride experience I'm yeah i'm gonna go back and do it again we're gonna stay in the huts and actually do it properly get fed and really yeah 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 drink hot chocolate and have a beer <laughs> so it'll be a different experience brilliant yeah because it seems to be really taking off all the the mountain biking traveling at the minute it's big industry big 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 business yeah i think the industry i suppose is always looking for new avenues mm. if i'm being cynical about it to sell bikes you know yeah. they, have to, they have to exist and so the whole fat bike things come along and plus size tires and i from my reading of it they i suppose almost it, it kind of went backwards in terms of the fat bikes came along and then the industry was looking for a way to market these fat bikes mm. um, and bike packing seems to be the perfect way yeah. um so actually Fat bikes are fantastic for being able to load them up with loads of kit. They're still really stable and you can ride them across virtually anything. They've got super low gears. They've got massive tires. Mm-hmm. And so you do see people doing some really cool stuff just riding across thousands of kilometers of tundra. And I read a bit yeah. about some fella going across Mongolia on a, and you wouldn't be able to do it on, on any, other, any other kind of bike. Um, and yeah, I think it's, it's just, again, it's, it's triggered a lot of people's imagination. And yeah. so people are starting to hang all sorts of camping equipment off the side of their bike and just go for it. It's brilliant. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's another big growth area and it's, it's starting to get recognition in magazines. Mm. And obviously the companies are well on the back of it and developing all sorts of new kit and equipment and bikes to suit that, that market. Certainly, so yeah. Certainly. Okay. Um, so let's talk about a wee bit about uh, Rock and Ride Outdoors, how that came about. Um, and what actually interested you well you went to uni what did you study in uni i studied geography right okay. <laughs> nothing to do with anything it was just a, an easy degree to be honest right uh, okay work um, for me so yeah so how did you make the step into doing or having your full-time employment as rock and ride what what made that step happen i guess well my 
dad he was originally a geography teacher which is where i guess my degree came from but then he went and ran an outdoor center for 30 odd years he ran a couple of outdoor centers so i was always brought up around the outdoor industry mm-hmm. um and that was always in the back of my mind but then after i graduated i needed to get a job i needed to raise money and so i went off and started managing supermarkets um okay. which was all right it was a, yeah i quite enjoyed it it was a good job but i never intended to do it long term and i've got no sort of aspirations to have any kind of career and so yeah in the back of my mind was always this thing that i wanted to work in the outdoors and i decided to quit the supermarkets before i was 30 because it's it's a young man's game really Mm -hmm. um and yeah i just worked out how i could turn what i love into into a job so yeah it was it was a case of going away and doing as many qualifications as i could in mountain biking Mm-hmm. And then starting to deliver those qualifications, which was initially what Rock and Ride was set up to do, I suppose, um, was delivering top level qualifications in mountain biking for myself and in rock climbing and mountaineering for Paul, my business partner. Um, and then on the back of that, I've got really into the coaching side of things. Yeah. So I've been coaching lots and lots for the last three or four years. So did you and Paul sit down at one stage and say, right, what are we going to do here? Or, you know, how does that kind of thing come about? Or were you thinking of doing something together at the same time? Or, you know, did you say to Paul, look, Paul, I've got a great idea. Do you want to do the the climbing with me? Or I think it came out of, originally the three of us, there was myself and Paul and Ronnie. Um, and it came out of a slight disillusionment with the state of the outdoor industry, particularly yeah. in Northern Ireland and in Ireland. Um and we would sit together and have a pint and, and kind of moan about how there was no one delivering all the kind of things that we would be interested in doing. And through that, it did kind of grow organically. And suddenly we had the idea, well, why don't we actually start looking at doing that? Um, and then myself and Paul are the ones who really picked it up and ran with it. And we just went and got more and more qualified. And now he's a, a European mountain guide. He's just moved to france about a month ago so he's basing all his work out there he's got the most annoying facebook feed you'd ever see because every day <laughs> is him just doing a facebook live video on some peak somewhere in the sun um but yeah he's he's living his dream i'm living mine um yeah. and it, yeah it's just worked out well for both of us That's and i guess brilliant. the reason it worked is because we found a niche and mm-hmm. yeah kind of went into it yeah and you can kind of run it remotely can you so he can do that okay where he's at yeah he comes back to ireland whenever he needs to deliver things in ireland and so it means i suppose he can come back and catch up with everyone but justify it as work um and likewise yeah i I can go anywhere i can go and coach and work anywhere which is great i think yeah there's there's a big guiding scene in europe which yeah you can sort of jump onto anytime you want right so you could so you're you obviously are qualified to a very high level yeah, um, you're qualified as MBLA mountain bike qualified, or yeah. What does that so stand for? I'm I'm an MBLA tutor. MBLA was the Mountain Bike Leadership Award, um, which was the original award. It was set up back in 1997, um, and it was the originally it was the UK wide award for um, developing mountain bike guides, and then it got bought up by Cycling Island, who are the all-island body. Um, and so now I deliver courses for them, for Cycling Island, um, to train up other leaders. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, like the coaching thing was a personal interest thing. I, I couldn't see anybody else doing coaching on mountain bikes particularly. Mm. And so I just spent a long, long time watching and analysing and, and kind of seeing what, what bikers actually do. 
breaking the skills yeah. down and, and working out how to teach them. So when you so when Rock and Ride was starting out, you got into that environment. Did you set that as a goal for yourself? I am going to become one of the highest ranked people in, in mountain bike qualifications, or did it just did it just kind of run? Did you just run with that? That's Not where at it all. Ended, or? And I, I got really lucky in that. Um, in order to become a tutor on the MBLA scheme, actually involved going over to Scotland quite a lot because it was all administered from from Scotland back then. And then I moved to Ireland, I think it was about 11 years ago, and that was exactly the same time that Cycling Ireland started getting involved in the whole MBLA thing. Okay. And so I just appeared on the scene. And it was great for them because they suddenly had another qualified tutor. Um, and it was great for me because I was the only one in Northern Ireland. Brilliant. So, yeah, that just, you know, it was one of those lucky coincidences that really fell into place. Um, yeah. And that allowed me to run a lot of courses and, yeah, eventually quit quit doing what I was doing. Um, yeah. And then the coaching has just grown on the back of that. It's grown on the back of that. So when you were gaining them qualifications, you say you were over in Scotland quite a lot. Was it quite tough? Were they, how long did it take? Did you find them quite intensive? I think because I'd been biking for a long time at that point and because I grew up around the outdoor industry um, and I'd already got other qualifications. So things like, you know, my mountain leader qualification. So actually mm-hmm. for me, my mechanics was already really good. I've been f- building my own bikes for 30 years or whatever, 20 mm-hmm. years at that point. Um, I was already a qualified mountain leader. So my navigation was good. And so in actual fact, I guess I didn't have tons to learn but I was amazed at how much when I did my trail cycle leader, which was that's the sort of the basic introductory level course. I was amazed how many things I picked up. Um, and it was, yeah, it was a really good course. It t- yeah. Totally inspired me to sort of carry on from there. Mm-hmm. And then it was just a case of, yeah, going back, doing my assessments and then more learning, I suppose, doing more work, guiding on bikes. And then I went away and did my mountain bike leader award, the higher level qualification, and that meant going over and doing some amazing riding in the yeah. you know, Lake District. And then that went brilliantly. The assessment for that went really well. And by then I decided that that's what I wanted to be doing, delivering those courses. Because I saw the tutors and they were having a brilliant time. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, you know, and you look around the room, you think, oh, they're, they're probably making a tidy living out of this as well. Like there's eight yeah. of us here and we've all paid such amount of money or whatever. And no wonder they were smiling because they're out on bikes all day, just just having a laugh um, and making a living. And I thought, that's I want to be that person. So from that point, I guess I decided to make that happen. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it took a long time, took several years and a lot of trekking back and forward and being observed, doing things um, and delivering courses myself. But yeah, it's well worth it. And did you ever think at any time, wow, uh, this is too tough or... Were you ever a bit nervous at any time about stepping away from, let's say, full-time employment where you're bringing in a wage every week, you kind of know where you're at, you know how to pay bills, or did you do it in between times? How did you manage that? How did you? I Again, I was pretty lucky in that I was working in retail and making a decent amount of money, and then I took, I ended up taking about two and a half years off. Really? Um, and and this was to do your qualifications or no, not originally no it's to right. go it's to go traveling with with a woman <laughs> as you do <laughs> um who is my wife now so it was well right, worth well it, yeah no I, I lived in england and my wife anna lived in ireland and so we sort of said well what are we going to do like we can't you know can't have a long-term relationship on those those sort of terms and so we both just took 
a year off work and then that turned into two and then I moved over here and I got a year's traineeship in in Tollymore Centre where we are now um, and that gave me a year's breathing space and I guess I picked up a load of qualifications then which allowed me to about a year after that I, I, you know, I went back to retail for a bit raised as much money as I could and then I started freelancing as an outdoor instructor so not just biking a lot of work with you know climbing and kayaking and various other outdoor okay. things but that kept the money coming in, which mm-hmm. allowed me more time to get qualified in the biking. And then once Rock and Ride came along, I was able to just focus purely on mountain biking, which is what I always wanted to be doing. That's so, where your passion yeah, lies. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I still love the other outdoor yeah. bits, um, but biking was always the main sport. So. Yeah. And I think in anything like that, if that's where your passion lies, you just tend to pick it up a lot easier and it, it's just a lot natural to you, you know, because you're just naturally interested in it. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I think in an industry you're in, because because of my, I used to be a, a qualified surf coach, European surf coach, um, and I know that, it, you know, your passion comes across to your students. Yeah, definitely. So they see you're stoked, they get more stoked. It, it just works. Yeah. You know? and, yeah. Um, I know from talking to you today that you're, you're upbeat, you are still very passionate about mountain biking and, and whatever else you're into. So I can see how that would be really good for your students and, you know, the people you're coaching, et cetera. I don't think you can do it if you're faking it, to be mm. honest. And, I, you know, I see this, you know, I still work around the outdoors and there are some places, there are some centers you go to where the instructors are actors as much as anything because you'll sit around at lunchtime and they're sitting there and, oh, can't be bothered going out again. Oh, this is just hard. And then the minute they meet their group, it's all like, oh, hey, guys, how's it going? Yeah. Um, but you can't do that long term. Like, no. it's, it's too detrimental to your own mental health having to put on this act of enjoying yourself. Mm-hmm. For me, I never have to do that. You know, most of my work these days is actually one-to-one or it's delivering leadership qualifications. And so everyone I work with, well, they're super enthusiastic to be there as well because they've decided, right, I want to improve what I do and I don't care if it's lashing with rain because we're going out there and I'm going to enjoy myself. Mm-hmm. And so if they're having a great time, it makes it easy for me to have a great time. Yeah. And, you know, every time I'm out there, I'm looking around thinking, I'm sitting on a bike, I'm not sitting in an office. I don't care if it's snowing. Like, as long as I'm out on a bike it's making great. a living, what, what could be better? Yeah. There's, there's yeah. nothing better than taking the one thing you love and turning it into a job, so... Yeah, very inspirational. Very inspirational. Um, so you provide a number of different courses and qualifications. Yep. Take us through some of those, if you will, just a, a brief overview. Um, I've researched a wee bit on your website and stuff. And it's, you do so much. You offer so much. It's quite overwhelming. What kind of give us in your word briefly what what you would do? What qualifications you do? Well, qualifications wise, um, it's all about leadership. So. Mm-hmm. I deliver the MBLA scheme, um, so the Mountain Bike Leader Award scheme, which qualifies people to be guides. Okay. Um, so if anyone aspires to take other people out um, commercially or for, quite often it's for organizations, you know, scout groups, you know, you get some, even the likes of PE teachers who tend to be from a biking background themselves and they've just seen a way that they can infuse other people into the sport, mm-hmm. but they're not allowed unless they get insured. And they can't get insured unless they're qualified. Okay. And so that's that's kind of where I come in. So yeah, the, the MBLA awards allow them to do that. Right, brilliant. And what about beginners coming in to the, to the scene? 
do you offer courses for for that, like a complete beginner's course or an yeah, immediate? That, that's where the coaching comes in. Yeah. And the sport, especially here, has seen a massive growth in the last 10 years. Um, up in the north here, we've had Cassowellan and Dava and Restreva trail centers. Mm-hmm. And that has just put mountain biking massively into people's conscience. And I guess like skiing in a way, when, when people start, they haven't got a clue. But with skiing, people know they haven't got a clue. And so they go and get lessons. The whole mountain bike lesson thing has been a bit slower coming through. But certainly, yeah, with beginners, people are realizing that actually it can be quite difficult. And also it can be a bit dangerous as well. You know, mm-hmm. if you're going to ride a bike, you're going to fall off a bike at some point. And yeah, that's where the coaching's come in. Um, so yeah, I, I coach a lot of beginners. And it's quite easy actually to teach people to be fairly good on a mountain bike it doesn't take too much time it's just a few fundamental movement skills Mm -hmm. um and yeah you can improve really really rapidly yeah so when somebody comes to you and they say they book into a beginner's course yep how do you assess their ability at that at that stage um good question you know how, how do you know if that course is maybe a wee bit beneath them and they maybe should be more intermediate what what way do you assess that i kind of skip around that by these days doing most of my work one-to-one um and if it's not one-to-one then it'll be with groups of mates mm-hmm. and so one-to-one is great because i'll ask them in advance you know we'll have a chat email a bit and i'll try and work out what what skills they want to be looking at and i'll also obviously ask them what, what they've been doing how much riding how long they've been riding for where they ride and that gives me a bit of a picture of the level they're at but yeah. then quite often when they turn up they're quite a lot better than Mm. they've kind of explained. People are a bit coy about how good they are. Um, But it's great because it's one-to-one, then I can just totally tailor it to, to them. Yeah. Um, And so it just means that nobody's ever having to have a session where it's dumbed down or where it's, it's beyond their capabilities. And certainly when I started out, I was advertising days for people to come and book onto. And when you get some people turning up for a beginner's day who aren't beginners, or some people turning up for an expert's day who aren't experts, it makes it really, really hard. Mm-hmm. And it, it just means that people don't get as much out of the experience as they should. Yeah. So no, one-to-one works great. Um, groups of mates is actually even better because, <laughs> to be honest, even if one of them is nowhere near as good as the rest, well, they already know it. So they're either going to be a bit kinder to their mate or more often than not, they'll just give them dog's <laughs> abuse for the whole session. But it's, it's all good crack. So, you know, yeah. they, they don't really care. Um, yeah. And everyone, you know, they'll feed off each other. And so there's this kind of group buzz thing going on. The only difficult yeah. thing with that is trying to stop people from smashing themselves up because yeah, they all exactly. start feeding off each other and trying to do things that they yeah. wouldn't normally try and do. Well, when I, I, when I was uh, coaching surfing, I always found the worst people to get were a group of rugby players. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yep. Because they didn't listen to a word you said. Yep. They were gung-ho. They were all trying to outdo each yep. other. You know, and they normally end up getting in trouble. Yeah, uh, but it was good fun, and yeah. they knew they they were having good crack. Even yeah, even though their lives were in danger, they were still having Absolutely. good fun. <laughs> yeah, the problem is they don't realize quite how much their lives yeah. are in danger. And bike, uh, biking's the same, you know. I think as as a coach, um, as a guide, it's my duty to tell people it's dangerous. And so, quite mm-hmm. often, I'll do an introduction where I point out how many bones I've broken. So I've broken seventeen bones. Wow, biking. Over, which I think over the last 31 years or so, that's not a bad return. Like that's only one every six months or so. But like when I do say that, 
you sort of see people's face change and and then you know i say but you know i've no intention of breaking you today yeah um but do be aware it's a dangerous sport uh-huh. and trees and the ground aren't the most forgiving surfaces and if you're going to fall on it yeah. yeah at some point you might get hurt yeah and then at the other end of it the expert thing that's quite funny do you ever get people coming saying to you yeah i'm an expert and you find out that they're not or would you be coaching people that you kind of know their background um because i'm skills coaching rather than fitness coaching um then i'll see the same people again and again but quite intermittently and they're kind of improving in between so no i don't really get anyone who says they're an expert who's not an expert because i don't think people are (laughs) you don't meet many people who are that sort of they go the other way yeah they tend to go the other way um and again it's pretty easy to spot yeah. and so there's a few drills that i tend to go through at the start of every session which just show me how good people are on a bike without them mm. knowing they're being tested yeah just simple stuff like i'll ask them to ride around and see how close they can get the end of their handlebar to the ground and if they pick up a bit of speed and carve a perfect turn and get their you know the end of the bar about a foot off the floor mm-hmm. then i know they've got some skills and then if we go and hit a little drop and they just launch off it, no worries, then, yeah, it kind of, I can see straight away which level to gauge it at. Yeah. Um, and then I, you know, I discuss it with them above everything else. I don't want to put anyone in a situation where they might hurt themselves. So, exactly. yeah, yeah, if, if we're pushing it too hard for them, they're not going to learn because they're just too scared. They go yeah. all rigid. Um, so, no, it's, it's much better to actually let the people I'm coaching dictate what they want to do. Yeah. And the level they want to do it at. Well, so. the one-to-one thing's brilliant. Yeah. Because um, when I started a snowboard, I took a one-to-one lesson. Yep. And then I had a couple of mates when they seen how stoked I was and how, you know, how just extremely good it was. I encouraged them, even though it was more expensive, I encouraged them to take one-on-one lessons. But you learn so much more. Yeah. And you learn it so much, you know, faster and quicker and safer, I think. Um, so it's really interesting you do that that's that's really fantastic actually yeah I mean that wasn't like I said that wasn't the original plan I was originally offering sort of beginners days and intermediate days and advanced days but through running that I could just see and even in terms of booking things it just allows complete flexibility so if someone says I'm only available on Tuesday evenings that's fine I'll go out on a, on a Tuesday evening with them yeah. so it just yeah it makes everything easier um, and like you said with the boarding your improvement is so much more rapid when it's one-to-one hmm. because everything is geared purely towards your current ability yeah. and how to improve it. So, And if a beginner comes along, do they need their own gear? Can you provide no, that? No, 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 no. I, it's, it's quite rare. You know, people have normally got their own bikes and helmets and stuff, but now I can, I, I hire them in for people. I don't keep a, a fleet of bikes myself, mm-hmm. but I can hire decent bikes in for people. So yeah, just need a bit of advance notice. And yeah. yeah. Well, that's brilliant from a beginner's. Yeah. Um, I do sometimes get people who are, they're curious, you know, they've seen mm-hmm. mates of theirs have started biking and they've got every intention of maybe taking the sport up, but they haven't got the kit yet. So, yeah. 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 Uh, well, that's good because I was going to ask you a question of somebody like me came to you who bikes. I've done Dava, I do Garva, which would be really my local. Yep. Um, I've been biking for a couple of years, a couple of times a week maximum. Yep. You know, I can go off small jumps. I can, you know, I'm not an expert. I wouldn't even really call myself intermediate. Yeah. But if you're doing a one-to-one, then that's fantastic because 
you can just assess me at the time and yeah we can go from there because when i was looking at your courses i was thinking right am i a beginner <laughs> or am i an intermediate i just don't really know yeah you know so it's so it's good if people want to contact you they can chat to you and if you're doing a one-to-one then it's a lot easier yeah it is just to get them into the right bracket really yeah and the chances are that i'll still be looking at the same skills with a beginner um as an intermediate as an expert Mm -hmm. you're just doing it in different ways um and on different trails and different terrain um so yeah it's 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 still all about movement skills um it's still about putting your body weight in the right place Mm -hmm. um it's just that the better you get the faster you go and the harder trails you hit and the the bigger drops and bigger gaps and stuff like that yeah and uh, what's what skills do you think would most benefit you know like a weekend warrior like myself? What what do you think people that are out <coughs> once or twice a week need to brush up on? What do you see people feeling at really? I guess I get to follow quite a lot of people around trail centres just when I'm out riding, and the things that scare me the most are when people go off drops and they pull on the handlebars, um, which is pretty dangerous way of doing things and cornering so i've yet to meet anybody really who can't improve the way they go around corners yeah and i think in a way trail centers are slightly to blame because they tend to berm up the corners a little bit and so you can get away with riding around them without actually doing much with your body Mm. so i like getting people out onto onto natural forest the proper terrain um, and working on technique yeah so yeah corners and drops corners and drops yeah definitely so that's what i need to concentrate that's on. that's what everyone needs to concentrate <laughs> on and you know what once you've got the the fundamentals dialed then you can transfer that to any corner slippery wet off camber it doesn't matter so that's what i'm interested in um actually making sure people get those fundamental body positions right and then yeah. they can they can practice they can build on that yeah so yeah because i find myself going into corners and breaking in the corner going in too hard and breaking in the corner, losing all my speed. And then pedaling like then, mad to get yeah. out. Yeah, that's that's pretty common. You know, so yeah, you know, I would think that would be quite a common thing to do. You Absolutely, know? yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's funny because my mate who's been mountain biking a long time, Con, he, he's very fluid. Never seems to put in that much effort. Yep. I'm paddling like mad, breaking like <laughs> mad, slipping out, tr- you know, just trying to push myself all the time. But he's so he's so fluid, and I just followed his lines a few times, and it's so much fun. Yeah, riding the way he's riding, yeah. you know. And I don't know if he's faster or I'm faster. I don't know. Yeah, but it it was just so he much looks smooth fun. though. He's smooth. Everyone seems obsessed with the idea of flow these days. You yeah. hear people talk, oh, you know, they've got good flow. Um, <laughs> for me, it's it's something that I I was you know doing some sessions yesterday with a couple of pretty good riders, pretty handy riders. And all we were working on was braking less. So instead of dragging their brakes all the way down the trail just to feel like they're in control, mm-hmm. we were working on actually letting the brakes go and only braking and braking late and hard when they needed to. And then that meant they carried the speed. So then they weren't pedaling in between the sections. And so mm-hmm. all of a sudden it just looks smooth because they're carrying speed without having to pedal by just simply braking less yeah. um, and concentrating on technique through the corners and, and over the bumps and the drops. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, for me, that's what flow is. Yeah, it's it's not hacking away on the pedals out of every corner because you break really hard in the middle of the corner. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's what I do. <laughs> I don't have any. Flow. Come for a session. We'll yeah, I will need to now. I will need to for certain. <laughs> uh, so, what would be your? 
what would be your most popular course? Who's getting into mountain biking now? You know, or do you see people staying in it and coming back to you on a regular basis? What do you think? Is there many beginners stepping in to get to get uh, skills There's training with you? A complete mix. Um, I've definitely benefited quite a lot from yeah the sort of explosion in popularity of mountain biking here. Um, if I'm honest, I think I've benefited from people getting injured to some degree. I've really? I've come across the, yeah there'd be bunches of mates maybe in their forties fifties um, who used to play golf or used to meet in the pub, and one of them will buy a mountain bike. And you'll see them at the trail center. There'll be six lads all on brand new two and a half grand full suspension bikes. And yeah, they're uh-huh. all spotless and clean. And then you follow them for a bit and you're thinking, geez, these boys aren't that handy on the bike. Like, <laughs> um, and then, yeah, it's, it's brilliant. I love it. I love the fact that these, these people are getting into biking, but then one of them manages to fall off and hurt themselves. And then the next day I'll have five emails saying, my mate Dave just fell off and broke his arm yesterday. Can you teach me how to not do that? So yeah, that's it's, Wow, really? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I think once, again, it comes back to the injuries thing. Once people realize that the sport can be dangerous, that's when they start thinking, oh, I better learn how to do this properly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's done me well. But no, I, I think that there's, there's just a full wide range. Um, so just a bit of everything. A bit really. of everything, yeah. I, I get people who come back again and again. Um, but I try and make sure they don't come back too regularly because they need time to practice in between times. Mm-hmm. There's, there's nothing more satisfying for me than the likes of a fella, Gareth, I was coaching yesterday morning, coached him a few months ago. He came back yesterday, different rider, you know, just a massive step up, riding the bike really, really well. And it's great. It's, it's I guess in a way it sort of verifies what I did the first time. Mm. And I'd love to see him again in four months and we'll go off and start hitting some really big stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, that's great. So is the like of Gareth, is he, is he just doing that for his own social enjoyment or is he a young fella? Is he hoping to race? Is he? No, no, no. He's doing it for his own satisfaction. Yeah. I think, um, he got the basics dialed and then he'd been riding and improving and he just wanted to see what he needed to do to improve, take it up to the next level. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, it's all just for his own, own personal happiness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's brilliant because shows that he's obviously wanting to progress and yeah, yeah. improve at what he's doing and really enjoys it. And most people do. You know, most yeah. people would like to progress um, if they can. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people haven't got that much time. You know, we're not all fortunate like I am to be able to go out biking every day if I want to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess lessons, just like when you go for a week's ski or snowboard holiday, you take lessons for the first couple of days so that you can enjoy the next five days a lot more. Yeah. And it's the same. If people can only ride a bike once, twice a week, well, if they get a lesson, then at least that one or two times a week, they're going to be practicing stuff that will definitely improve the way they ride. And would you encourage a beginner, say, to come to you um, because you'll save them a lot of trial and effort trying to learn things themselves? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. How, how much do you think you would save them? Do you think six months, a year? I reckon... Hard to say. Honestly, if I had years. if I'd had lessons <laughs> when I was starting mountain biking, I was eleven. If such a thing existed back then, oh, fifteen years. I really? reckon if I'd had two or three days of lessons, I reckon yeah, fifteen years of bad technique um, would have been seriously yeah. as much as that. 
for me because you know I start like I say I started biking a long time ago and there were no influences mm-hmm. there was no biking on TV it wasn't until 10 years later that the first sprung mountain bike videos started appearing and that's when it sounds ridiculous now because there's 200 new edits every day um, you know you go on pink bike there's, there's just new yeah. stuff every day back then it was a case of sending away a check and waiting three weeks for your sprung video to come through the post. And apart from mates that I was going biking with, that's the first time I ever really got to see other people ride on TV. So that's the first chance I got to, to actually watch how it was meant to be done. So up until then, it had been trial and error. And the problem with trial and error is if you do something wrong and you don't learn from it, then you're always going to do it wrong. Yeah. So yeah, no, coaching is just all about ironing out the mistakes from the start. Um, there's a saying like people say practice makes perfect, but unless you know what to practice, it doesn't, it just makes it more permanent. Yeah. So if you, if you keep making cock-ups, you'll carry on making the cock-ups and then it just becomes second nature. That's, that's the way you do things. Yeah. Because I think when people go on the bike for me, I used to race BMX when I was a lot younger, but not, not at any kind of level. Um, but people think they can ride a bike, they can ride a bike. Yeah. But I suppose technique is so important, really. And if you learn the wrong technique or you don't have any technique, then you're going to struggle to progress and get better and be able to do Yeah, definitely. a I've, lot of the things you would want to do further down the line. I think the problem is, it's like you said, people think it's just like riding a bike, mm. which it is, but there's a world of difference between what you used to do riding around housing estate on a BMX, maybe not yourself, like, but plenty really of people, I on, yeah. yeah, you know, plenty of people just tearing around when they're a kid. Yeah. And yeah, you can get back on a bike 20 years later and you can pedal it and you can use the brakes. And after a while you'll be able to use the gears, but you're not mountain biking. Um, and I think it takes a while for people to realize that there's a bit more to riding a bike off road than there is to just tear around the streets. Yeah, um, and yeah, that's, that's the point that they'll come looking for lessons. Yeah. Whereas with the likes of skiing or kayaking or whatever, because you're taking yourself into a, a totally unfamiliar environment and situation, you seek that advice straight away mm. because you can't already ski or you can't already kayak. Yeah. So you need some help. It's just alien. Just to get you, started, yeah, because yeah. it is totally yeah. alien. So I'm interested in also the number of girls getting into mountain biking. Yep. And... Because again, you know, flicking through the web, there seems to be quite a discussion about this, about how difficult it is for girls to get into mountain biking because it's so male dominated. Yeah. What about yourself? Are you seeing many girls wanting to take lessons or is it something that you feel we need to promote more and within mountain biking? I do actually. Yeah. I think that women are quite often more receptive to realising that they need assistance mm-hmm. and, you know, same as getting directions, you know, mm-hmm. my, my missus wouldn't think twice about leaning out of a window and yeah. asking which way it is, but I, it's the last thing I, I would ever do. And so, yeah, I, mean, I, I do, I'd say probably 30% of the people I coach are women, which is definitely a higher percentage than sort of the amount of women who are biking generally, yeah. I, you know, it's probably maybe only 5% of, People out there mountain biking regularly, I'd say, are actually yeah. women at the moment. But mm-hmm. no, they, they do seem to be a lot more receptive towards learning and towards being coached. So yeah, I do. That's do. quite encouraging. It is, yeah. It's yeah. great. Um, and I'm not a woman, so I don't know how hard it is to get into the sport, but yeah. certainly it is obviously still hugely male-dominated. Yeah. Um, there are some brilliant female role models out there. You know, look at the likes of Rachel Lathan, Tracy Mosley, top, top racers, you know, homegrown racers, if you like. Um 
but it's still not at all advertising marketing it's getting there mm. but it's still not at all geared towards women really. yeah so. i think some of the brands are realizing like you were talking about earlier about the fat bikes it's a side of the industry that they can maybe can make some money from yeah and market some gear and equipment to yep so they're maybe thinking more along and i think it'll only improve yeah i hope will, so yeah which will hopefully help get more females involved yeah in the industry you know yeah uh, there's there's big debates that particularly around the whole marketing thing. And I can see it from both angles. I can see companies saying, well, 90% of our market is men. So we advertise yeah. for men. And then the other side is, well, 50% of the world population are women. <laughs> and so you need to start trying to encourage women into the sport if you're yeah. going to carry on expanding and growing. And I would go with the second one. You know, I think there's a huge untapped load of women out there who would love to be into mountain biking, but they just haven't got the right advice. Um, it's, yeah, it's not easy to get into. No, certainly not. But I think it's getting better. Yeah, Hopefully. I think it's improving. Hopefully it'll get better. There's, there's a brilliant group of ladies based around here um, called the Feel Good Factor. And it is, it's a club and they just go out and do loads of cool outdoor things. And they, they came to me because they wanted to get some qualified leaders. And I, yeah, I had a brilliant time. I ran a course for, for six of their ladies and they were superb. It was a really, really interesting course because, again, it just had a different atmosphere. They were all so keen to learn. And when they came to assessment, they were about the most prepared people I've ever assessed. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was different just seeing different approaches. And there were definitely different ways. I learned a lot from that, seeing that women, women do tend to learn in a different way as well. They encourage mm. each other a lot more. Um, yeah, there was there was a lot of learning for me. It was very interesting. Yeah, that's that's exciting, I suppose, for you, for you and, and the business and how it can go in maybe different direction yeah, as well. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, so let's talk a wee bit about the qualification side of things. Then, yep. So if you've got somebody who feels they maybe want to do something similar to yourself, or wants to go a weekend and, and take a guided tour or something, yep. how would they get into that? What qualifications would they first initially need to look at? What level would they need to be at? how would you advise somebody get getting involved that way so there are several different qualifications um mountain biking being a fairly new sport um it's not settled down into into one qualification you need to get so over if you if you live in britain then there's the british cycling awards um and they've also had the mbla awards in britain if you live in ireland there's the mbla awards um if you go to france they've got their own qualifications and whatever Essentially, if you're here in Ireland, then the MBLA awards are the ones that you would go for. And the introductory level one is a trail cycle leader, which allows you to take groups of up to eight people out mountain biking. And the only real limitations on it are that you have to be below 600 meters elevation and within 30 minutes of getting help. So for riding with a group anywhere around here, around County Down, it's fine. That's, that's as much as you need. If mm -hmm. you want to go and work in the Alps or in any mountains, then you're obviously going to be above 600 meters and you're going to take yourself into a much more remote area. Then you need to look at the higher level, the, the MBL level qualifications. Right, okay. So if somebody was fully qualified, is there many opportunities out there for them to get work via that? Can they work in Europe? What yeah. way does that kind of work? Then? Yeah. It's a bit of a funny situation, really. Um, there is no worldwide qualification that's recognized. And so, yeah, for the likes of guiding in France, in Spain, Italy or whatever, then certainly people have come and got qualified with me and then gone out 
and started working abroad i shouldn't have said france actually because france is always a dodgy area um but yeah anywhere else in europe i got a fellow who's out working in whistler at the moment who came and got qualified through me and although there isn't any solid international recognition what there is is a recognition of the fact that yeah you've gone away and done a qualification um and yeah the the nbla awards because they've been around for a long time now are known and so they are recognized worldwide as in people have heard of them and mm-hmm. so that means if you're looking for a job for one of the guiding companies, then yeah, it's, it's definitely the way to go. Yeah. And in terms of working in Ireland, there's not really a guiding scene here yet. I'd love to see it develop because we've got a lot of potential. But even for me, if I had a choice between a, a week in Italy, sunning it up and riding amazing trails or a week in Ireland, again, riding amazing trails, but with no uplift service and no guarantee of good weather. Uh, yeah, I know where I choose. Mm-hmm. But I'd love to see more people coming here and riding. And then again, that's that's where qualified guides would, would come into it. The big avenue here is really working in outdoor centers. So a lot of the outdoor centers these days will have a fleet of mountain bikes and they need qualified people to take people out on those bikes. So yeah, that's that's the way to go. Yeah, well, that's good. So it'd be mostly people wanting maybe employment in Europe Yeah, that you would see going through that yep. qualification. Yeah, And again, like I say, when it comes to the qualifications, a lot of it comes down to organizations who they really want to take people out on bikes, but they need the insurance. So they need the qualifications. So yeah, yeah, I've had all sorts, councils, scout groups, youth groups, teachers, um, a lot of bike clubs, obviously, especially around here. There's always been a big road mountain biking, uh, road mountain bike. There's always been a big road (laughs) scene around here, but a lot of the kids coming into the clubs want to do some mountain biking. Um, and a lot of the adults as well have been racing cyclocross and then they get into the mountain biking and so they need qualified people to to take those groups out do you see many kids coming into it is there many kids coming to you for lessons no not really lessons and i i guess it's something that i've not really pushed for to be honest i think that the club scene is really good around here. And I see a lot of clubs doing really, really positive work with a load of kids. And I reckon that it's probably better for them to come through that kind of background, working all together, rather than paying me one-to-one. Kids are amazing at learning. They're amazing at learning off each other. And so actually, if it's a case of them getting taken out in a big group and riding the forest, they'll leg each other on. And as long as the person who's taking them out has got qualified well part of that qualification is learning how to coach and so yeah if they're doing my job for me happy days you know? yeah so the adults that are taking the kids out in the clubs obviously need the qualifications yeah to do that. yeah and part of the qualification right. even, even the tcl even the basic level qualification part of that is teaching other people how to do the basic skills so teaching them how to ride corners teaching them how to ride drops because you can't take a beginner put them on a bike and expect them to know that stuff. Yeah. And so, yes, yeah, I think it's, it's fantastic what the clubs are doing. And clubs want to survive. And surviving as a club is part of, you know, you've got to encourage the next wave of riders. So, yeah, they, they really want to get the kids involved. Yeah, well, that is very encouraging. Yes, That's good. yeah. That's good. And rock and ride now, just from your own personal side of things, are you happy with the way it's going? And yeah, very much giving so. you the lifestyle that you've you kind of want it and when you were working in in supermarkets and stuff like that did you ever <laughs> think that you would be doing what you're doing now i've never been someone who sort of plans their life if i'm honest you know i don't sit down and think right what do i want to be doing in a year's time i, I plan my holidays 
Yeah. Um, and Rock and Ride has definitely allowed me to justify going away and, yeah, just take a lot of really amazing holidays. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like I say, it's a dream lifestyle. I, I get to work doing my hobby. So, yeah, it's fantastic. Long may it continue. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, so just more general terms then, um, mountain biking, where do you see it going? You know, do you think it's changing much or oh that's a big question you know do you do you think it's is it because for me you know i think it's getting more popular do you think it's going to keep growing and expanding and i think as long as the industry keeps finding ways to keep it fresh and change it then yeah it will carry on growing and expanding i mean up until sort of oh, five, six, seven years ago, it was almost as if the technology was peaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all of a sudden you get all the different wheel sizes coming in. And right. I watched hear about wheel <laughs> sizes. Don't, don't make me talk about wheel sizes. Go on. <laughs> uh, sorry to interrupt, but uh, because we were talking about this, you know, just previously there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'm on 26. Yep. Old school. Yep. You like 29. I do, yeah. Right. Uh, but anybody getting into it, so anybody that's listening, getting into it, there's a big discussion at the minute between 27 and a half inch and 29 inch yeah. wheels, right? Forget about what I'm on 26. That's old school. That'll never, <laughs> that'll never be made again. Uh, what? Why do you like 29ers? Why do you like that so much? Is it because you mainly ride a hardtail or... I, oh, how did this come about? Um, I rode 26, obviously, for 20 years, and it was fantastic, and it's all we had, and so we knew no better, and the technology got better and better, the suspension got better and better, and so what we could do on smaller wheels just, you know, and constantly evolved and improved. Then 29ers came along and the first 29ers were crap and I rode one back in the day and then I spent five years doing what everyone else was doing saying, oh, they're useless. They're, they're terrible. They, they look awful. And I still don't think aesthetically they're not as nice as smaller wheel bikes. But yeah, I kind of put them, put them to one side. And then I guess about two years ago, I jumped onto a proper slacked out 29er. So a 29er with angles that were very similar to the 150 mil 650B bike I was riding at the time. So I was riding um, an Ibis Mojo HD. And in fact, mm. I had a Santa Cruz Nomad before that. And they were both 650. And they were amazing bikes, um, especially the Ibis was incredible. But I didn't really notice that much difference with the wheel size between 26 and 27. Okay, and really? Okay. Then I jumped on a 29er. And it was actually, that's right, I was in Colorado. And I'd hired a bike. And I got in touch with a fella and he took me out for the day and it was only when I picked the bike up that I saw the size of the wheels and I started thinking, oh, what am I going to do with this? Um, and this fella who's, who's taking me out, an ex-professional racer, and he said, listen, just ride it the same way you'd ride your own bike. And we rode off the top of Pikes Peak. So it's a 14 and a half thousand foot mountain. Yeah. 41 kilometer descent we rode off there. Every different type of terrain. Within five minutes, I've forgotten the size of wheel that I was on. Then I noticed that every time I freewheeled, even though I was on a thousand quid hire bike and he was on a prototype pivot carbon max six, I think it was, you know, 10 grand's worth of kit. Mm. Every time we freewheeled, I had to keep braking 
because my wheels were just going faster than his. And he was on... He, he was, was on, on 650. Right, okay. Um, and then I noticed that I didn't have to change my riding technique at all because the angles were right. Then actually it just worked. And there's one section where it was about a thousand foot drop with, oh, I don't know, 50, 60 switchback corners. And I said, like, how the hell am I going to ride this? And again, he said, just ride it like you would normally ride your bike. And I got to the bottom and I, yeah, maybe I had to work a bit harder in the corners, but no, nah, generally loved it. And from that point on, I guess I, 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 I saw the light in a way. And like you say, particularly on hardtails, it, it's almost cheating. Yeah. So they roll better, they corner better, they grip better. And so for me, 29 is, is the way to go. So you think, do you think a 29er would be okay as an all-round size? So if you're only going to have one bike, would you say 29er? Yeah. Yeah. For me, I think the only, the only time I'd advise against it is when people are shorter and so the size of frame they need doesn't really effectively fit the big wheels but mm-hmm. there's been big changes again you know the, the stanton that i'm riding now it's got a curved seat tube and a lot of 29ers these days have got a curved seat tube so they can fit the back wheel in but still have really short chain stays mm-hmm. which means that they accelerate really well they're still snappy they're still quick in the corners and that was you know part of the original problem was that they were so long like i always knew i was in trouble when i got the I got the santa cruz it barely fitted in the back of my van because the wheelbase was so long and the 29er I'm riding now, obviously the wheels are bigger, but the wheelbase is shorter. So it's actually a snappier handling bike, but it's got the advantages of rolling over much bigger things. Yeah. Um, and I noticed on super technical stuff that there are drops and there's step ups and bits and pieces that I can get away with just rolling over that swallow up smaller wheels. So it's a cheat. It's, it's a definite so cheat. So there you are. If you want to cheat, just get a 29er. <laughs> They're faster. What I would right. say is that they're not necessarily as much fun. Okay. So if you're all into throwing the bike around and it's all about pumping the ground, getting off the ground as much as possible, then yeah, smaller wheels I think are still better fun. Um, if you're into generally going faster, carrying speed better, then 29 is definitely the way to go. 29. Yeah. I'm really interested to see how the whole downhill thing pans out. There's been a lot of debate this year. It's working well for Greg Mina. You know, it didn't seem to work so well for Danny Hart. I think, you know, there's always a preference thing in it. But yeah, I, I pretty much foresee 29ers taking over, particularly enduro um, and okay. maybe downhill in the next few years. Right. It's interesting and I'm sure the debate will go on. And oh, it will, it will. Go on. And then that's all been superseded now by e-bikes. Yeah. So for me, I'm still waiting for my first coaching client to turn up on an e-bike. Um, and if I'm honest, I'm all for them. Again, there's this massive debate but they allow people to go mountain biking who otherwise wouldn't have a hope of going mountain biking. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. They allowed my 70-year-old dad who's smoked like a train for 50 years. Like wow. me and him went biking in Italy last year and he's burning me off on the climbs. Um, <laughs> and of course, everyone who's watching, they just see this big fellow with a beard rolling up this hill, no worries. And they see this younger skinny fella behind him like busting myself. Yeah. And they don't know it's an electric bike. So it's a bit embarrassing for me. But yeah, it just allows people to get out there. And they're not motorbikes. They're not mopeds. You know, no. they're not, it's not twist the throttle and tear the ground up. Yeah. You have to pedal. But it allows you to go out for a three-hour bike ride and maybe get in 10 decent downhill runs where previously you only did three and you were knackered. So I, yeah, that, again, I think that once the technology is good enough, yeah, yeah people are going to really start adopting it. They're going to be everywhere. They're not badly priced at the minute, you know, they're expensive, but yeah. but if that's the way you're going to go, they're not too bad. 
No, I mean, if you look at most companies seem to be able to pitch in for about, they're expensive, but three or four grand will get you an enduro e-bike these days. And I'm thinking Mm -hmm. of the likes of Cube. Um, I'm trying to picture companies who are really, really working hard to basically produce an electric version of their own mid-travel bike. Mm -hmm. Because I think that's that's where the mountain bike inside of the market is going to be. It's going to be people Mm -hmm. who maybe haven't got the fitness, but they've got the skills and they want to go and smash out some trails. Yeah. Um, and it just allows them to do that. It allows you to get more biking for your for yeah. your time. More downhills. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So you're riding with Stanton bikes at yep. the minute? Yep. Tell us a wee bit about them. They're British bred and born and bred. Yeah, based in Derby. Um, and they are a sort of three, four-man operation. And yeah, it's all in-house designed. Um, initially, all hardtails. And they've just got a full suspension bike. So the prototype's going to be arriving in about four weeks' time. Um, so are they going are to get you to test out. that? Sorry? Are you going to get you to test that? Um, I don't know if I want to. Like, no. I I love hardtails. Right. Like, okay. I really do. Um, I'll be eating my words, obviously, next year. When <laughs> when they bring out a 29er version of the full suspension. You have suspension, to ride this, Ian, like... because this is the bike we're promoting. <laughs> you have to ride the full no, suspension. No, no, no. They're super cool. Um, the, the whole sponsorship with Stanton came about i was riding for ragley last year and I, you know they were great great bikes um but i kind of wanted to ride for a, a, a rider own company um and so i got into a chance conversation with dan stanton on the internet um and then yeah i was chatting to him on the phone off the back of that and he was as much a bike geek as i am but he knew a hell of a lot more and so i just got this i got this overwhelming enthusiasm and knowledge off the fella and I was thinking, Jesus, yeah, this this is cool. And I, I was already well aware of Stanton because I'd been racing against a fella the previous year who was on, on a Stanton bike. And I just loved the look of it. And I'm a total geek for, for weld quality and build quality. And the, yeah, they're just second to none in terms of the, the actual quality of the build is incredible. And so, yeah, I, I managed to somehow get around to saying to Dan, oh, you know, I might be looking for a sponsor next year and off the back of that there you are. yeah there it was have they been going for long or are they um they've been going for about six or seven years right okay. um so they started off making sort of like a, a four cross bike basically um dirt jumpy type stuff if you like um and then yeah they've branched out so it's all steel or titanium um and then yeah suspension's on the way so ever evolving I, I don't know how they get the time to actually develop so much stuff but yeah yes it's great it works for me well that's good well for sure we'll check them out I'll, yeah I'll put yeah a link take a in look. the description for anybody that wants to check them out and uh, the show notes that would be cool yep brilliant so how can people get in contact with you if they want to brush up when they're breaking and cornering skills like, <laughs> like i need to do drop me a line um so it's ian at rock and ride outdoors.com or just google rock and ride outdoors um there's a new website on the way in the yeah. next few days so we all nice bright and shiny um and yeah just give me a shout from there brilliant okay so i'll put anything in the show notes folks if you want to get in contact with ian and uh not go head over heels on the corners the way i do <laughs> um, and there'll be other links and stuff there for stanton bikes etc in the show notes so ian thank you very much pleasure thank it you it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you good stuff and you've got me stoked it's raining outside but i might go out in the bike uh, I'll, yeah i'll be impressed if you do you might need a <laughs> kayak out there today it's horrendous but yeah go for it thank you very much no worries 
Wow, that was an awesome show. I really, really enjoyed speaking with Ian today. Um, and he's he's just so, full of so much information. It's unbelievable. But um, that's the show for today. I hope you really enjoyed episode number two. We have so many more guests lined up and uh, some very exciting ones within that. So uh, one last thing before you bike off. Please go to iTunes, Google Play, wherever you download your content. Subscribe to the show, rate the show, please share the show. That would help so much and leave a review and a comment. Also, please get in touch via social media. Let me know what you would want to hear on the show. Is there anybody you would want to hear from? Pick their brains about a certain topic, anything. Just let me know. For more information on today's show or today's guest, visit the show notes at mtb-tribe.com. And one last thing, what magazine are you reading at the minute? Thanks for listening again, folks. Catch you on the trail.